Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to another investment edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and investment universe right now. Bob and I have been having these conversations at the beginning of every month, and we'll continue to do so. So please look for them wherever you get your podcasts. So Bob, things have changed a little bit since our August conversation, where markets had a very strong July some disinflation news helped the markets, but August was pretty choppy. And uh, I think uh, Chairman Powell's speech at Jackson Hole really maybe kicked things off, rattled the markets a little bit. But but what have you seen since the last time we talked? Yeah, thanks, Sammy. I, I think the big thing that um, kicked off a change in direction in markets was Powell's speech at Jackson Hole a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think he caught markets off guard. He was um, pretty negative, bearish, hawkish, whatever you want to say, talking about economic pain that is to come and how this pain is necessary um, to slow down inflation. Um, market's been you know, thrown around the term a Fed pivot or a Powell pivot, meaning changing the direction from raising rates and slowing down the economy to, you know, okay, we, we've, we've slowed things down enough. Now let's cut rates. Let's cut back down to zero or, or lower. So we grow and, and he basically said, don't count on a pivot. So it was a, a nasty Fed statement and markets didn't like it and they, they sold off. Um, both stocks sold off and bonds sold off. So bond yields are higher and stock valuations are more attractive now. So Bob, was it a nasty pivot and something that the markets shouldn't have expected? It was a, a little more negative you know, than the markets expected. I, I mean, should they have been? Expecting, I don't know, but just the quick price reaction shows you that that it was a little more than the market was expecting. Um, a lot of what the Fed does, it, it's it's behavioral, it, it's it's mental. It's not always economic dollar and cents. And you know they're flexing their muscles and saying, "I've got the power here. I'm going to squash inflation at all costs." And everyone get in line, and the market got in line. So you know, in the past we've seen that the market has come to expect the Fed as some sort of tool or boost to the to the market when it's struggling. The market has in the past blinked when it wanted to do things and the market reacted negatively. So is your thought that over the summer, people still weren't 100% convinced that the Fed was going to be as aggressive as it said it was going to be to cut inflation until they heard Powell's very short speech, basically saying, don't look at us. We're going after this thing, guns blazing, and it's going to hurt. Yeah, I think that's fair. The Fed maybe has gone from on on one hand, you know, the the Fed put that's in there to save the day when things get bad to, okay, the Fed's more neutral. This will go both ways to now they're they're in the bad camp or no, they're they're out to um, hit inflation at all costs. And, you know, the, the don't fight the Fed mantra. So, um, I think that's fair that they're a bit of a, uh, a hurdle for investors right now. And just trying to convince them that we're we're serious basically this time as you're thinking about what to do. It's almost like a, a pseudo rate hike, right? You 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 talk people into being afraid has got the same effect or a similar effect 
to you know actually raising rates the next time around. Exactly, like Powell says, there will be economic pain and companies are going to struggle. There's going to be slow growth. So then a company says, hey, should we hire? Should we open a new plant? Should we you know expand business? And maybe not. The economy's not looking so good. I just heard Powell say this. Okay, let's not let's not hire. Let's not expand. So just the words can have an impact, and I think that's very intentional. They're aware of that. They're aware of that. So that's the elephant in the room, justifiably so. The Fed is really what is driving a lot of what's going on in the market these days, with, with obviously with inflation being where it is. What are you seeing as you look you know, below that level with the consumer, with housing, with inflation? What are, what are we seeing that may be feeding into what the Fed is thinking about? Yeah, the two things that are really catching my eye at the macro level are housing and energy. Um, the, the amount of data I've seen on the housing market slowing down is is really impressive. Um, it had been hot since pretty early in 2020. You know, um, everyone's staying their home longer, the you know generational changes of, of home buyers, you're in a supply-demand imbalance, but now we're seeing um, more price cuts than we've seen in a long time, days on market is um, going up. So houses are sitting on the market a lot longer. New mortgage applications are going down. 30-year mortgage rate is over 6% now on average. So it's just data point after data point that's showing that this housing market is slowing down. Whether or not we enter a housing recession that um, some people are saying, we don't know. But I think the the days of that COVID era housing bubble with your price, your house going up 10 or 20% year over year, that's behind us. And we're probably now more in the place where the Fed wants us to be with housing, where, yeah, your house will go up 2 to 3% a year. That, that's what it should do. But if anything, there might be more risk on the downside and that, you know, maybe it needs to correct by 10 or 20%. So um, I think we're definitely seeing a slowdown in the housing market and, and shelter is, is the term um, is, I think it's about 29% of the CPI calculation. It's the largest individual component. So when you talk about inflation, it's high. We need to slow it down. Number one, shelter. And I think that's it's, it's happening. So from someone who you know is concerned about inflation and looking at the Fed, to me, that, that's kind of chuck the box that, that that one's being addressed. Well, when we talk about that, it's similar to a conversation we had about deflation versus disinflation. So as I guess maybe not to alarm people, when we're talking about the housing market slowing down, you you talked about both scenarios, but the base case was that the, the price hikes and the price increases will slow down from here, not that we'll reverse course and, and go into uh, you know price declines. Right. The, the base case is the, the era of crazy bidding wars. Houses get sold overnight with six above market offers. Like, Hopefully that that insanity is behind us, and now it's a normal housing market. That's so more that's equilibrium. More equilibrium, uh, and you have to hit that on uh, the demand side. People talk you know, economic supply and demand. Um, supply, there's only so many houses available for sale, and, and it is a low. So on the demand side, by pushing mortgage rates up, by this hawkish Fed talk, that you know will slow people down and hit demand. So then you have more equilibrium and less craziness and more price stability. So you, I, I cut you off a little bit. I think you were going to talk uh, about energy prices or gas prices as well. Yeah, that, that's the second point. Um, energy prices have come down a lot. Um, as we're recording this, I think energy oil is down 5% today. It's now below 
um, it's like $82 for WTI crude, which is below where it was before Russia invaded Ukraine. So that whole Russia-Ukraine spike that led to higher energy prices and contributed to inflation, we're now below that level. So that's come down quite a bit. Gasoline prices are, are down a lot. Um, you know, there's there's a cute line. The cure for um, high energy prices is high energy prices. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, it costs me five or six bucks a gallon to fill up the tank. Maybe I'm not going to go on a road trip. And you just hit demand and the price goes down. So, so, so what's, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, so just back to, you know, rolling it up, um, CPI calculation. Energy is a big component directly. We all use energy to heat our home for transportation. And then it's also a component of one of the other largest components of CPI, like food. Food needs to travel. It needs to, you know, get into my refrigerator. So um, energy is huge. And, and seeing energy prices go down is good for slowing inflation. So what's going on there? I, I'm very surprised by what you just said about oil prices kind of being back to where they were pre the the war. What is accounting for that swift drop? I think it is in this case both supply and demand. Um, not an expert on the oil markets in particular, but I think they have pushed production. So production's been increased, and OPEC is um, releasing reserves. So when you just hit the market with more supply, just throw more oil available. Um, even if you hold demand constant, the price goes down. But then also on the demand side, like I said, you know, the cute line earlier, you know, with high prices, um, demand can go down a little bit too. So how's the consumer doing in all of this? So when you look at a lot of data, you have leading, lagging, and then coinciding. And a lot of the consumer data we see is um, lagging and coinciding. And so far, so good. You know, unemployment rate is low. Um, something good we saw was an increase in workforce participation. So more people are working, which is great. Um, and the consumer balance sheets are strong. So people have saved and um, their net worths, you could say, have, have gone up. So the consumer's better positioned, certainly than um, if you go back to the financial crisis in the 07, 08, 09 period, uh, consumers in a lot better position now than they were going into that era. So while housing might be a little frothy, it's backed by a, a solid, much stronger consumer than we had then. So what do you think this all means for the economy, Bob? You were in the camp, I think pretty consistently that we were going to have a recession. We weren't going to have a quote unquote soft landing. Where do you see things right now? Yeah, it, it may be happening. We may be in a recession now. Um, if not it, in that process, um, and stocks are down 20%, which is right around maybe the low end of the range that you'd see in a recession. So I, I'd probably say it, it's here or right around the corner, um, as we are seeing a lot of these signs of things slowing down. You're not going back into, or not back into. You're not heading into the soft landing camp. You you do think there there will be a recession. It could be mild, but and we could be in it right now. But all of this stuff is leading to something. Yes. What do investors do about that? Right now, one of the key things is to look at your fixed income allocation. Okay. But investors really in in two buckets: um, accumulators 
you know, people who are saving, working, extra cash flow you're saving, and then people who are living off their portfolio. If you're working and saving, keep investing, keep saving. Because one, one way to think about it is if, um, say, you're going to work for the next 20 years and stocks are going to return 8% a year. If it's a linear 8%, you just always invest and you get your eight. But in reality, markets go up and down. And the last thing you want to do as an accumulator is wait for them to go down and then say, oh, I don't know, a recession's coming. I'm not going to put my extra cash to work this month or this quarter or this year. And then things get better and you put it to work. So for the people who are saving, stick to your plan. Keep putting money to work at these better prices. For the people who are living off their portfolio, it's a little trickier. They feel the, the pain of, of market declines more. So that's where diversification is important. It's critical. And within that, that's where I was saying fixed income. Um, bond yields are, are much more attractive now than they were at the beginning of the year. 10-year treasury, or really all treasuries are in the threes. Even short-term treasury is around three and a half. So then you take some spread assets and you can get a high quality fixed income portfolio yielding 4%. So have fixed income, um, that brings you stability, especially if we enter a recession. That's when things slow down, people want bonds, and that's a place to draw from. So just make sure your asset allocation is right, is the short answer. And can can we be a bit more specific? If people are looking at their bond allocation and they do own bonds, are the areas of the market that you like now more or less than you did to start the year when you know, we hadn't had the the rate hikes and the higher yields. Yeah, it's across the board. The market sold off, but trying to be more specific, I would say quality. Um, just seeing that you have the, the double A, triple A, I guess even single A rated fixed income. Um, that's something that we think you can count on if stocks go south um, as we're in a recession. So just seeing that that's built out. Um, municipal bonds are an area that we have added to but also just your traditional treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, agency mortgage-backed securities like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. But um, yeah, something we've been doing and will continue to do is to not be too cute with our fixed income as far as credit risk. We take credit risk, but don't go overboard. So maybe the flip side of of, um, your question within fixed income, I'm not saying pile into high-yield bonds right now. Okay. You know, you can have some, but that's not a place that you want to count on um, if things slow down. So credit quality is important. Quality yield. The other thing I know that your team looks at when managing bond portfolios is duration. And, you know, could you explain duration briefly? And if your thoughts on duration have changed over the last year? Yeah, so duration is a measure of the of a bond's price sensitivity to a change in interest rates. So the way to think about it is if I buy a bond today and it has a 3% coupon, and then markets move, Fed raises rates, and now I, I could, someone could buy that same bond with a 4% coupon. If I were to sell it, no one's going to pay me what I, what I paid for it. I'm going to have to sell it at a discount because rates went up. So I'm going to sell it at a lower rate, lower price. So it essentially yields 4%. So when rates go up, prices go down, duration's a measure of how much the price goes down. Um, so when you look at how much interest rate sensitivity you want in your portfolio, you do have to have a, a view on the risk in interest rates. We have been increasing our duration slightly this year, um, in the last two quarters in particular. So we're increasing our sensitivity to interest rates because we think that interest rate risk is more attractive. You're getting a higher level of compensation for buying longer term bonds right now. 
So when you're getting three and a half percent or so um, on treasuries, you have more room for rates to move because um, you're getting more income with it. So just kind of stepping back, it's like it's a risk compensation discussion. Um, a 1% change in rate is going to hit the bottom line about the same amount. But how much yield are you getting for the risk of stomaching that 1% move? You're getting more risk now. You're getting, excuse me, you're getting more return for that now. So we're willing to take a little more of that interest rate risk. And so I think it's important to tee this up for people to understand our starting point. Correct me if I'm wrong. We were short duration heading into the year. So when you're saying increase, we're not necessarily going long. We're just going longer. Correct. Yeah, we the, the bond benchmark, the total bond market has a duration of about six and a half. We started the year in the th- like mid to upper threes, and now we're in the low fours. Okay. So not moving mountains, still under the, the bond market, but going call from mid threes to you know, four and a quarter to four and a half. That's uh, in, in the direction um, that, that we're where we are and where we're moving. Touching on a couple of things that we've talked about in prior conversations, where's the VIX? The VIX is still on the lower end um, compared to where you see it in like periods of the call it market bottoms. Yeah. Um, like 70 is the, the real like, um, you know, March of 2020 or November of 2008, like real extreme level is 70. The average, you know, in like pure complacency market might be 10 to 12. And right now we've been in the, the 20s to 30s. Right now, I think we're around 25. So elevated, but not off the charts, not like, wow, there's a ton of volatility and, and time to back up the truck. So high, but but not sheer panic at 25 today. Swear it is. And what does that tell you? It, it tells me that we're in a, a volatile market, but it, it's not, um, yeah, there's not a lot of overreaction probably. It, it's just, it, there's some pessimism, but it's not, um, like I was saying, it's not a back up the truck and buy stocks because people are panicking. Yeah, that that makes sense. And we've talked about this before, but uh, corporate earnings, how are they looking or how are they coming in during this reporting season? So, yeah, you asked two different questions in one. So they came Sorry. in. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's a good point. They came in um, about in line with expectations, came in showing there's t- about 10% year over year growth in Q2 earnings. But I think a big asterisk is all of that growth can be attributed to the energy sector. So energy sector earnings were up something like 300% as energy companies made a lot more money. If you look at companies X energy, earnings were flat year over year. But they at least came in, in the line with expectations on average. But what we've seen is um, above average cuts in guidance. So reducing expectations for Q3 and Q4 analysts cutting estimates companies lowering guidance. So we've seen that to an above average degree. So um, companies and analysts are setting expectations for the next few quarters to be um, below where they have been. Um, So it's more like it's been pretty good, but things are slowing. It's the big picture. Got it. And what is your team looking at? It sounds like you've been pretty active. You're obviously monitoring what's going on in the markets. Is there anything else on your radar screen that we haven't you know, touched on uh, in this investment conversation so far? In this one, no. So the theme that we've been acting on the last 
few months has been real assets. It's mm-hmm. really been a theme this year, um, how we built up an allocation late last year and going into this year, and that worked worked nicely. Um, it ties to the inflation theme, and then we've cut that, been cutting it and putting that into other places. So it's it's classic rebalancing, um, you know, buying low, selling high, and that, that, that's where we, we've had some nice wins. And that's the area that performs with high inflation. So it's taking chips off the table on the, the, the high inflation bet and buying positions that um, like bonds that'll perform um, well, we think if um, inflation slows. Yeah, thank you, Bob. And for those of you kind of looking for some more information on real assets, we recently did a podcast with a real asset chief investment officer, and there's more resources available at our blog at heritagefinancial.net. Pivoting a little bit here, Bob, you know, I recently shared a post through the Boston Advisor called Understand Your Messenger's Agenda, which is basically, hey, it's a golden age of information out there. It's kind of a golden age of misinformation out there. And if nobody has the time to absorb and process everything that they need to know to make good financial decisions, so you you got to really be careful where you're getting information from. And a good starting point is to understand if your messenger has an agenda and what that agenda is so you can filter that information. And I, you know, I shared my agenda just in terms of, you know, ultimately I think people can do well over time investing in a diversified portfolio through an advisor to hit their long-term financial goals uh, and make sure that their financial plan is taken care of and kept up to date along the way. I wanted to ask you, and I think this will be a fun conversation, when you're consuming investment information out there or when you see that our clients are, who are some of the people that you find valuable and who are some of the people that you would warn people away from on either on TV, you know, articles, blogs, so forth and so on? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, maybe I'll answer it a little differently. When you hear someone say something, step back, listen, and look at fact versus opinion and specifically, or can be an opinion, but is it supported by data? What you want to hear from someone is them providing you information that's data, like mortgage applications are going down or energy prices are below um, you know, the point when Russia invaded Ukraine. And when you, when you hear things like that, that makes sense, that supports an opinion, um, you know, that, that has merit. And even if you're not saying, you know, this person is bullish, so I'm bullish, you look at it and you learn data from them. They shared an interesting tidbit that makes sense to me. Um, So what I'm cautioning people against is the fluff out there where it's, I get these things from clients and people like, oh, so-and-so, they they said get out of stocks. Well, why? Well, here's the article. They said get out of stocks. But there's no substance. So always look for data to support a case. Um, now, more to directly answer your question, I do like the folks at Schwab. I think Lizzie and Saunders is great. Um, and Jeffrey Klein's up. When you look at a piece they put out, it's full of charts of information, tables. They'll look at valuations and measure market valuations 10 different ways. They'll you talk about like the yield curve. Jeffrey Klein top says it's not, is it inverted or not? It's how many points is it inverted? You know, so the, the, there's a lot of, um, you know, information. They look at sentiment. Um, so some charts on sentiment where they work with Ned Davis research. So I, I like people who provide a lot of information supporting their view. Another one is the Luth Holge group, um, smaller shop out of Minnesota, but they're like market technicians just pour through historical data to support views. So that that's more just how I look at it is 
less talk and more, you know, give me numbers, teach me something about, about markets. It's not just opinion. And it sounds like you process that information piece by piece. If there's data that helps you, it's great. You're not necessarily absorbing the whole message or, or story. You're you're trying to filter through and learn because they're gathering information that they've basically curated and provided to you. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's where it's form your own opinion. You, you look at it and you do have to be, be aware of the messenger. Like, is this is this data that you've never heard of before and they're just making it up to tell a point or is this really meaningful? And I go back to that energy example. I feel like that's a pretty straightforward one, the price of crude oil stem. Um, so looking at things like that, that makes sense and form your own opinion, but listen to people to become more informed on facts, not more informed on consensus opinion. And are there people, maybe you're too nice to answer this, but are there people who you just dismiss? And maybe not dismiss entirely because they're, again they're they're sharing data, but you just worry that they take their conclusions too far. You gave me an out by being too nice to answer that. I, I don't want to be telling <laughs> who to not listen to. I think if you just listen to, um... well, I'll share one because you know we. I think okay. we all have a tremendous amount of respect for the GMO team and Jeremy Grantham, who's you know really prominent. And I just read a long piece of his yesterday about a super bubble that we're in, and. They they make a lot of good points. I think they tend to extrapolate things to you know bearish extremes that we don't see pan out. I've heard you say before, you know, directionally they're right, but you you know they're just way too pessimistic with the the the, the directional points that they're making. So very informative. I hesitate to push people in that direction because it all seems like the world's about to end with those guys. Yeah. So an example of how I interpret their research at times is. They may say stocks are going to go down 50% because valuations are X and they should be Y. Well, what's Y? And Y might be the average multiple since 1928. So, okay, I get that. Now you think, well, should we be at average since 1928? The world has changed a little bit. There is more history of the U.S. stock market. There's more regulation in the stock market. Companies are bigger, more profitable, more technology markets are deeper. Is it fair to say that the, the stock market in the year 2022 should does have a little less risk than the stock market in the year 1930? If the answer is yes, then maybe we don't need to go back to average. Maybe we don't need to go down to 50% down by 50%, make it up numbers. So that's where, yeah, they're pointing to some things might be expensive, but also do, do we need to you know go back to average is um, just one way to look at that. I agree with you on the people that you shared that you enjoy reading, and and I do as well. Another one is, uh, for me, Howard Marks. He he writes very thoughtful uh, investment-related memos. They're long, but they do have a podcast version of them now if you don't want to read through the the whole thing. And um, on the flip side, you know, know, there's people like Peter Schiff or, you know, John Hussman, and they're seeing a catastrophe around every corner. And I just don't think that there's much of value uh, with those folks. And there's also people who made one good call. And then after that, everybody wants to kind of hop on board their 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 subsequent calls. And, you know, I know Meredith Whitney made a great call back during the great financial crisis about banks. And then she kept making other calls and, you know, muni bonds and things that just didn't pan out. And so, you also, I think, have to be careful, you know, anointing gurus because that's not really what you're looking for. You're not looking for feast or famine major moves. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd, I'd add to the names, um, Ed Yardeni, Yardeni Research, he puts yep. out a ton of good charts and they're updated just about daily. And you can Google him, Yardeni Research. And uh, Richard Bernstein, uh, Richard Bernstein Advisors, he's pretty good too. He does, he's a little more active and will have views, um, but I do like the research he puts out. Um, yeah, w- w- I mean, one other thing on this topic, CNBC used to have a, a little thing where They'd interview one person and they'd pick a stock like Google and they'd have someone who's bullish and bearish and the bullish person makes their case, the bearish person makes their case and they'd wrap it up. And that's what makes a market because everything's at equilibrium for every buyer. There's a seller. So there's always someone on the other side. So that's where it's just almost just just be careful. Don't listen to too much of this nonsense and separate fact from opinion. Got it. Great advice. Bob, thanks for conversation today. I'm sure our listeners always find it valuable to hear from a chief investment officer managing a lot of money, what is going on with markets, with the economy, and what priorities they should have as they're reviewing their portfolios. So thank you very much. Thanks, Sammy. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcast and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow Heritage Financial on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.